Hey everybody, I'm Brian Dunstan, joined once again by my man Keith Reedon for episode 12 of the Puck and Hoop podcast. All that's fit to hear about Puck and Hoop. So, this is our news and notes section, and there's a couple of things that have grabbed our interest over the course of the last week or so that we think you might want to hear us talk about. Uh, you know, KD's out for at least a month with the Brooklyn Nets, and uh you know, that's kind of one of the places we want to start with. So, Keith, let's dive right into this. Um, the Brooklyn Nets have uh, turned their season around, or had turned their season around, and then bang, they get hit with a knee injury to Kevin Durant, who was having what most people are thinking was an MVP season. So here's the thing. Last year, one of the criticisms Kevin Durant had about the Brooklyn Nets and the way they built, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that a championship team or a team that has championship aspirations should be able to withstand the loss of one of their better players for a duration of the season and not suffer too poorly. Now, it looks like Kevin Durant's going to be out for, what, four weeks, which is roughly about 15 games. So this is a great time for the Brooklyn Nets to put Kevin Durant's hypothesis to the test. Are the Nets a championship team? We're going to find out right now. You know what? I don't necessarily agree with KD that you should be able to lose a player of his caliber. Um, the Nets started off horribly for a, a variety of reasons, as we know. But, I mean, mm -hmm. they were the hottest team in the league when he went out. They were 17-2 and two in their last 19. That's an incredible, incredible run. Um, and KD was a huge part of that. No doubt. You know, KD was averaging over 30 points per game in that run. How do you replace those 30 points per game? I expect Kyrie Irving's scoring to go up, of course. You know, but, you know, when you look at the, the Nets roster, I mean, you know, the third best player on the team is, uh, you know, supposedly Ben Simmons. And I know Ben Simmons brings different things than just offense. Um, or uh, he brings his defense. He's an assist guy. He's a smart basketball player. But you know what? I would expect Ben Simmons to step up his game. He's only averaging seven and a half points per game right now. Uh, you know, in, in 2023, in 31 games played. Seven and a half points per game. For me to replace Kevin Durant's 30 points per game. I mean, can Ben Simmons get up to 20 points per game? Can he alleviate some <laughs> of that scoring? I know you're laughing, but I mean, Kyrie's already at 26 points per game. I don't expect Kyrie to start scoring 45 points a game. You know what I mean? So some, it's got to come yeah. from somewhere. I know they've got outside shooting uh, with Joe Harris, Seth Curry, um, you know, Royce O'Neal. Um, but without uh, Kevin Durant, I mean, Kevin Durant, uh, I hope he's optimistic. I think that was a question. I know you said this is kind of like a scientific experiment, but I think, you know, you're pulling out the biggest control factor. For me, this is like, you know, hey, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make uh, aspirin, but I'm taking out the active ingredient. Kevin Dur Durant, for me, is the active ingredient for the Brooklyn Nets. Oh, no question about that. But you touched on a few things there, Keith, that I think we should, uh, and I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it, unpack a little bit. Um, ben Simmons, first and foremost, 
I don't think we can expect him to bump his scoring average up to 20 points a game. It's just not within the man's makeup to do that. But one of the things that Coach Jock Vaughn talked about in the absence of Kevin Durant, he would like to see the Nets really bump up their three-point shooting attempts. Now, in the past, what, one game they've played without him? Or is it two games game. now they've only played without one, Kevin yeah, Durant? Only one, game, one game, the Boston game, which we'll touch on a little bit. Um, they put up three more than, they, than their average. He wants that to go up by 10 to 15 in the absence of Kevin Durant, which kind of makes sense when you have the type of outside shooting available to you that the Nets do with all those players you mentioned, plus Patty Mills. Don't forget about him, right? Oh, yeah, that's for sure. They still have him. So they got a lot of guys who can make the three ball, a lot of guys that like to take the three ball, which is where I think Ben Simmons can up his productivity. He is a downhill, drive-to-the-hoop-kick-it-out kind of guy. Well, if you're kicking it out to shooters like Seth Curry, Joe Harris, uh, Patty Mills, Royce McNeil, then you've got some pretty decent outside shooters. Let's make more of that part of his offense. His scoring, I can't see that being a big factor. What can be a big factor is, is his ability to break down defenses and kick the ball out. That will help them up their three-point attempts, and that, to me, is probably the best way, at least according to Jock Vaughn, that they will recoup any offense that they've lost from Kevin Durant. But it, look, 15 games without your best player, an MVP candidate, that's a tough road to hoe. So they're going to come back to the pack a little bit. It's how much they come back to the pack in that time that'll be the determining factor in, on where they land in the Eastern Conference uh, seedings. I think that, you know, based on everything we've seen from them to this point, they're better at defense. They have become better at moving the ball. But losing Kevin Durant is a big blow. If they can at least go 500 in that time, I think that Kevin Durant would be happy with that and still feel they have championship aspirations. Where do you land on if that? If they go 500, they, they're still going to they're gonna have a great record. If they go 500 mm -hmm. without Kevin Durant, they'll, they'll for sure, they'll be, in the, they'll be in the top four in the East when he returns. I mean, Cleveland at number at five already has 17 losses. So if so, if Brooklyn goes 500, say we say they go eight and seven, that'll only be 21 losses when KD returns. Um, so yeah, they'll probably still be a top four team. My issue, um, I'm going to go back and, and I've taken issue with you and Jacques Vaughn because my issue with Ben Simmons as a drive and kick kind of player is that if the man won't shoot the ball, shot three times, was 0 for 3 against Boston the other uh, two nights ago. 0 for 3. Gave up, passed up on many layups and, and ended up, you know, turning the ball over. If he won't, if, if he's not a threat to actually take shots, then why am I, I'm not double teaming him. Why am I worried about him driving to the basket if he won't take a shot? So for me, that doesn't open up three-point shots. You know what I mean? If you're not a threat, I don't care if, you drive, if you're going to drive to the basket to get two feet away only to toss it out. And I think that, you know, I, I saw him in his press conference after the game. I got to tell you, this looked like a defeated, a defeated player. I, I've never seen a guy hang his head like that so much, you know, in game uh, 41 of a season. He, he was looking down. He wouldn't look up. I mean, saying, yeah, I guess I got to shoot more. Uh, yeah, I got to find my shots. And, and he, he looked like so unconvincing, Brian, that he didn't even believe what he was saying. 
So I think that, uh, you know, he's got to definitely, mm. definitely turn that up and find his. Keith, all valid points. Plus, you know, we already talked about uh, off air what a poor shooter he is from the free throw line at 41%. Look, bottom line is this, Keith. Ben Simmons is a terrible shooter of the basketball, but he is a great, exceptional, visionary passer of the basketball. Somehow, the Nets are going to have to figure out how to utilize the one great skill, exceptional skill that Ben Simmons has and make it a big part of their offense for the next four weeks or so. Or else this is going to be a rough patch of the season for them without Kevin Durant. Look, there's no question this man cannot shoot the basketball. That's agreed. And yeah, it makes it harder to get to the hoop. But when you're 6'10", when you can handle the ball, when you have tremendous athleticism, combine that with the excellent vision he has, he has to find a way to impact this team offensively, as well as get back to the all-NBA defensive player he's been when he was healthy in Philadelphia. If those things can happen, Keith, then I think that will mitigate his lack of offensive prowess, especially with shooting the ball. But that has to be something that Ben Simmons commits to, and it's going to be, have to be something that Jacques Vaughn puts the Nets team in position to take advantage of. And if they don't, then, well, yeah, it'll be a rough patch for them. So there's a lot on Ben Simmons' shoulders uh, going forward for the next four weeks or so. Yeah, I mean, and the other part about that, Brian, and I agree with you, everyone knows that his shooting has just disappeared over the last three seasons. But, you know, just he didn't seem very confident. Jock Vaughn's statements to me were, hey, I, I'm riding – I got to ride with the team I, I've got. I've got half a season left, 41 games. So I've got half a season left. I need to boost up Ben Simmons' confidence, and I need to get him uh, at the best place possible where, you know, new NBA, man, I need to get his head right. I need him to get in the best place <laughs> possible to help our team. Uh, deriding Ben Simmons for what he can't do isn't going to help the team. So let's focus on what he can do. And I think that's where Jock Vaughn is coming at it from. And, it, and it's really the only place he can come at it from. Yeah, Keith, you're exactly right. Um, I guess the, the second half of the NBA season will be a big experiment for the Nets. And we'll see how it plays out, you know, without Kevin Durant for at least 15 more games. So talking about things that have played out uh, somewhat well for one person and not so well for the whole team. What LeBron James is doing in Los Angeles this season, there's no other word to describe it other than unprecedented. At his age, um, being able to play the way he has, being able to score the way he has, which is what we're particularly going to look at right now because I think as of the, the last look, he is 11 points away from becoming just the second player in NBA history to score 38,000 or more points, which puts him what, less than 400 points away from surpassing the only other player to score 38,000 more, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, for first place in the all-time scoring tally for the NBA. I don't know what to say about this guy. It's Other than this, what a waste of a great player in Los Angeles. What do you think, Keith? Well, you know what? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with the waste of a great player. Uh, maybe in this season, it's a bit of a waste, but let's be, you know, he brought a uh, championship just, you know, what was that, three seasons ago now, to L.A., yeah, where, yeah. you know, 
they really had no business. I know it was the uh, COVID season there, but they really had no business winning a championship. And I think that, you know, you kind of, that trade-off, you'll take it. We took it in Toronto with Kawhi, you know, for a trade-off for a championship. And LeBron did bring them a championship. But I do agree with you that this guy is just incredible. I mean, the Lakers uh, won, you know, five of their last seven games. He's been scoring at an unbelievable clip at 38 years old, which is remarkable. I mean, he should pass Kareem, which I saw the tail end of Kareem Abdul's Jabbar's career, and I never thought I would see a player. If Michael Jordan didn't do it, if Kobe didn't do it, I didn't think I would see a, a player come, you know, like LeBron, especially LeBron. He's so big, so physical. You know what I mean? I thought he would, he would, I thought by now he'd be, his career would be over, knee injuries, back injuries, whatsoever, something. And this guy is, he's just incredible. Just incredible. Yeah, that may be the, the thing that, the bulwark that underpins his entire legacy. Health. How is this guy playing the way he does for as long as he has maintained such a high level of health? Being able to stay away from the, the injuries that have plagued other superstar, athletic, athletically gifted players at the t throughout their careers and at the tail end of their careers, especially as they've gotten older in such a demanding game like Hoop, man. It's, to me, that, that health factor. And there's all the talk about how he's invested a million, two million, or what have you, every year in maintaining his, his uh, health and physique. But it's just incredible that this has been able to enable him to be at this level for this long. It's, uh, I keep coming back to that one word that describes it. It's unprecedented. But what it's also done, and not just for basketball players, I think for athletes in general, it's laid a blueprint on how to conduct yourself in a career. You know, take care of your body, take care of your health. If you have the resources and the finances to do that at the next level, then why aren't you doing that? Because, look, we enjoy these games, and they are games, even though they're professional sports. We enjoy these games because of what these athletes can do on the field of play. But if you're not on the field of play, how are we going to enjoy you? LeBron James gets that. He brings enjoyment because of the way he plays to millions across the world. And he understands that there's a responsibility that came with that. And he's taken that responsibility and turned it into the way he maintains his body, the way he conducts himself in season and out of season to have played 20 seasons in the NBA at a level that we may have never seen again. It's unbelievable. You know what about LeBron? Yeah, he spends the money. I think he's really one of the more level-headed superstars that I've seen in any sport. Um, you know, it's kind of like the Derek Jeter of the NBA, right? You're not hearing anything. Solid, solid comparison. Yeah, you're solid not hearing comparison. anything bad about this guy, and he's been in the spotlight since he walked into the league. But what I really want to say is I know he does all of those things to keep himself in great shape, but this guy was different from day one. You know, I hate to say, oh, he's a natural athlete, but this guy was a physical specimen at 18, 19 years old, playing in a league of men, scoring 20 points per game right off the go. And, you know, it's, I think it's a combination of that great 
physical, natural makeup and the mind and his mind saying, hey, look, I yeah. want to get to places. Because you, we both know he wants to do stuff outside of basketball. This scoring record, I saw an interview with him and he said, you know what? Never really thought about the scoring record. Never did. It was never a goal of mine. Just championships. And in the last three years, we know he, he stated it. He said, my, my goal is to last and play at a high level so I can play with Bronny, which is LeBron James Jr. And he laughed at the end of the interview. He says, I'm doing my part. He needs to do his part to get here. And, and, <laughs> and that's his focus. You know, like, and, and you know what? I fully believe that LeBron, he doesn't care if he passes Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on the all-time scoring list. I don't think he, he's the kind of guy who would walk around pumping his chest because he's the all-time leading scorer. You know, I think he really would love to play with his son and win another championship, especially at 38 years old, and especially not being carried along to a championship, but being like the lead on the way to a championship. I think LeBron is probably in the top three athletes that I've seen in my lifetime in, um, if I'm looking at the categories of day in, day out performance, off the court um, attitude and performance, and also leadership ability in every arena that he's in. Yeah, there's no question about that. You know, just before we started this episode of the Puck and Hoop podcast, Keith, I was looking at some uh, old school video of Michael Jordan and, and his uh, exceptional airness. That it was a, a reel of him, not just dunking, but just the way he got to the hoop. And uh, unbelievable that he was doing this, gosh, what, almost 30 years ago. Um, next level, changed the game, you know, un incomparable to that point. Every generation, there's a guy like that. And LeBron James has been that for this generation. And he's not just taken that exceptionality that Michael Jordan brought to the game. He's taken it to another level. And what he's also done, I think he's changed the parameters for what the uh, GOAT argument is. For most people, for everybody involved in, in watching, talking, chronicling sports and the impact it has on, on society and people in general, when you talk about the GOATs, the greatest of all time, one of the first ports of call in the argument is championships. LeBron James, I think, by virtue of the length and breadth of his career and the unprecedented nature of what he's accomplished in these 20 years, he's changing the parameters of the GOAT definition. It doesn't have to be about how many championships and whether you were the MVP in those championship years. There's more to it than that. And that may be another big piece of his legacy going forward. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, um, for me... I always think that it's undervalued and underestimated that LeBron was in 10 straight, 10 straight finals. That's incredible. I knew we, That's an unbelievable run. Yeah. Once again, those are the only words that we can come up with to describe this. Unbelievable, unprecedented. Yeah. It's just, there's nothing to compare him to. Yeah. So by virtue of that, you want to talk about the, the GOAT argument for a second. By virtue of that, if you're doing things that no one's ever done before, at a level that's never been seen before, who are you comparing yourself to? Nobody. So doesn't that, by virtue of that, doesn't that make you the GOAT? In Ten years. And this is from a guy who loves Michael Jordan. Oh, yeah. Ten years ago, I would have said no chance does he, ha like, he has no chance 
to be the quote-unquote goat in my eyes. But the things that yeah. he's been able to do on on and off uh, the court, just let's keep it to on the court, the things he's been able to do at age 38, I mean, you know, and never without a without a break. I mean, Michael had two breaks, right? Two breaks to get the knees, yeah. you know, right in the back, right? Um, yeah, I, I think he's in the argument. Um, the thing about Michael Jordan, that <laughs> you think he's in. I think he's in the argument. I can, <laughs> you think LeBron's in the. Ar- I can't. I can't get away from the fact that Michael Jordan, once he hit his stride, he seemed to hit every big shot that was given to him. We've seen LeBron miss big shots, you know, and that's yeah. and that, that's the only thing. And you know what? When you're talking about goat, you know, I'm the statistics guy. You're less of a statistics guy. And when you're talking about GOAT, I think Michael Jordan just has that thing that he made you feel a certain way. He made you feel every yeah. time he was in a big game that, that you were gonna wa- you're watching greatness. He was and he was also going to come through so in some way. He was the hero of every the hero of a movie. You know what I mean? No matter what yeah. happened during yeah. that game, back and forth, he was gonna come through at the end. And if you're a Jordan fan, Bulls fan, you're going to have a happy ending. That's the, the thing that I, I feel that, that Jordan, um, you know, just that's what he brought to being the GOAT. I don't know if Kareem Abdul-Jabbar brought that. I don't think LeBron brought it. I, I don't think Kobe brought it. Um, you know, because these guys, we, we saw them lose. You know what I mean? I didn't even put Karl Malone in there because mm-hmm. he has no championships, right? But we saw those other guys <laughs> lose on the big stage you know and lose sometimes to teams that you're like what like let's be honest mm-hmm. lebron lost to that that dallas team after declaring you know dallas yeah, lost to that dallas mavericks team after decla- he lost to dallas yeah, after declaring you know not one not two you know what i mean he, he mm-hmm. ended up losing to when they were heavily favored that yeah, and that wouldn't happen to Michael Jordan. You know what, Keith? You opened a bit of a door about this whole GOAT conversation. Heck, we might as well walk down it, right? Because this is our podcast, sure. and we can pretty much go wherever we want. <laughs> so let's talk about the only two people I think are in the GOAT conversation in, in the NBA right now, and that is Michael Jordan and LeBron James. Um, I, I want to talk about something that you mentioned, and that's the feeling that you got watching Michael Jordan. Now, maybe it was because we were younger when we saw Jordan coming up, so we're able to romanticize and mythologize and, you know, look at Jordan as this ultra super being from another planet no one's ever seen before, which is the way he played basketball. And that, when as a younger person, that has a greater impact on you because you look at that and you think, oh, goodness there's never been anything like that I've never seen it before and then along comes LeBron James and it's kind of like oh my goodness I've never seen someone so young do this but you're older you're looking at it from a more I don't want to say jaundiced but maybe more experienced perspective so you're a little cool to what he's doing you don't get as as hot up about it but he's been doing it for 20 years he made those 10 finals in a row he's still Arguably the greatest athlete on the planet. You know, he just might have that mantle still at the age of 38. So, and like you, I am a Jordan stand from beginning to end. But I don't know, Keith. It, it just might be changing for me because I watch this guy average 29 points a game. Shoot better than 50% from the field. 
fly to the rim like he's an 18-year-old at the age of 38 in his 20th season. And I'm thinking, is this even possible? And the answer, of course, is yes, because he's doing it right now. But then I go back to how Michael Jordan made you feel watching the game. And you know what underscored it for me, Keith? Is when he was not in the game. When Jordan wasn't playing, basketball didn't have that shine for me. It didn't have that energy. It didn't have that verve. But as soon as Jordan got on the court or whenever he came back from one of his absences, it changed everything. There was, it was like he was the sun. And he was a, not even the sun, a supernova. He outshunned people by that much. You don't get quite that same feeling with LeBron. But then I come back to those 20 years, man, and age 38 doing what he's doing. It's a great combination that is unprecedented in not just basketball and sport, but is it enough to make him the goat over Michael Jordan? That's the conundrum I'm weighing right now. And I'm, I don't know. I'm, I may, for the first time, be leaning towards LeBron. But if you told me, um, you know, hey, let's look two years into the future. LeBron's 40 years mm -hmm. old. He's playing with Bronny, and he's averaging <laughs> 25 points and, you know, seven assists and seven rebounds a game. Here's the thing. I wouldn't be shocked. I really I wouldn't be yeah. shocked if he was doing this yeah. as a 40 Why, why would you be, right? Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked. And I will tell you, championships or no championships if he's doing this as a 40 year old i'm sorry michael i'm gonna give lebron the goat mantle at least that that's how i feel because that will be yeah and you're right over the breadth of a long career that will be in its totality amazing something that I've never seen or never known. Well, I think that's as good a place as any to end this discussion, or at least this part of the discussion for now. But uh, how about this though, Keith? It's like we talked about earlier. LeBron James is holding up his, his end of the bargain. I wonder if his son, LeBron James Jr., Bronny, will hold up his part and make it to the NBA. All shall be revealed in time. All right, let's turn our attention to Puck. And there's only one thing I want to talk about in the news and notes section of our podcast in terms of Puck, and that is who released the Kraken? Yeah, I mean, the Kraken just did something that no NHL team has ever done. This is a second-year expansion mm -hmm. team, and they just won seven straight road games. And in the process, they beat your Toronto Maple Leafs. They humbled them. <laughs> so, you know. Yes. And then they walked into Boston Garden and, and humbled out. them. Something that no one's done in regulation and time this season. shut the Bruins. Shut them out. And I, I watch, I, I try not to watch Bruins hockey games. I got to be honest with you. But I watched most of that game <laughs> and just to see, can the Kraken do it? Yeah. And the, these guys, yeah, they... I, they are released. You are correct. They look like somebody shoots them out of a cannon. They come with this unbelievable forecheck in your face style. And they, they're doing it with, you know, remember, most of the guys on their team were un, are unprotected guys just a couple of years ago. So players, other teams didn't view as, uh, you know, as, it, well, the reality is, as integral enough to their own success 
that they could leave them unprotected. I know in this day and age, there's other implications, contracts, and you want to you wanna see if you can sneak yep. certain players by an expansion draft. But the Kraken are doing it, by and large, with, with these players. Seven games in a row on the road. And, oh, yeah, okay, they shut out the Montreal Canadiens in that... Uh, in that little thing, but I, I'm more impressed that they, you know, they they beat the Bruins and the Leafs. You know, they they humbled the Leafs five to one, Brian, five to one. Yeah, well, the final score I don't think was indicative. Yeah, it was of more of a game three was played, but game. they did walk in the Maple Leaf Gardens. Yeah, they they walked in the Maple Leaf Gardens and beat the Leafs when the Leafs were going well. They walked into TD Boston Garden and beat the Bruins when the Bruins were going well. Look, anytime you beat the number one and number three team in your league, you're doing something right. So my contention, though, about these Seattle Kraken, are they not this season's Florida Panthers? Overwhelming offense, pretty darn good uh, goaltending, but they give up a ton, too. So wouldn't that lead you to believe that maybe, just maybe, as good as they're going right now and as great a regular season as they're having, this isn't sustainable Come springtime when playoffs you know what? happen. I, they give up a lot of goals, but over this streak, I mean, they shut out Boston. They shut out Montreal. They allowed the Leafs to score one goal. No matter how they did it, they, they allowed the Oilers to only score one goal. And, and even before that, it's an eight-game streak because the last game at home, they beat the Islanders 4-1. to one. So, yeah, they, they, they'll have your games where they allowed the Blackhawks, the lowly Blackhawks, to score five five goals. But I was looking at, I didn't see that game, I was looking at the box score. Two of those Chicago goals were scored in the in the final minutes of the game, right? I mean, it was an eight to three game. Yeah, maybe they relaxed a little bit. But, you know, I was looking at their roster, Brian, and the stats. This is, I, I know we talked about some of the stats, but this one shocked me. Five, their five, their top six defensemen, five of their top six defensemen have played 40 games or over. 40 games or over, Brian. And that's, I found that really shocking. They've, they've got four defensemen that have played 42 games. That's incredible. They've got four defensemen, Brian, that have played 42 games. Five of their top six, five of their top six have played over 40 games. And the other one has played 35 of their 42 possible games. That's incredible. That's why I think that you're seeing such continuity. And yeah, you know, they do allow some goals, but look at the, look at the goals they allow. A lot of times they're late in the game when the Kraken are already up by, you know, 8-2, to 8-1, to 8-3, to three, as, as in Chicago the other night. I don't know what you think about that, but, you know, will for me, that says a lot. Well, uh, good health is obviously an indicator of good play, and in the, a Kraken's case, that is definitely what seems to be happening. Whether they can maintain that into the playoffs, kind of like what happened to the Florida Panthers last year, as my contention is, we shall see. All right, that's our look at news and notes for this episode 12 of the Puck and Hoop podcast. Up next... Let's turn our attention to the Montreal Canadiens. 
So the Montreal Canadiens, uh, boy, they hit a bit of a speed bump. Well, a big speed bump. Let's call it a speed mountain of late. But one guy who seems to be having, let's call it a breakout season, Keith, Cole Caulfield. Do we really know what the Habs have with him? Is he going to be one of the bona fide goal scorers in this league? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a guy, he's 22 years old. This is his first full NHL season. And he's, he's got 25 goals, Brian. He's on pace. He is on pace yep. for 48 goals. I mean, by any stretch of the imagination, if this, if you told a Canadians fan at the beginning of the year, the beginning of the season, Caulfield, yeah, he's gonna go, he's gonna score 48. They'd all say, oh yeah, but you know, winking and yeah, he's he's not gonna get there. We, you know, but we'd be happy with 35. But this guy, he's gonna smash through the uh, 35, 40 goal barrier. And he's a threat to score 50. He really is. He's one of those guys, when you see him on the ice, he's five foot nothing, a hundred and nothing. Sounds like Rudy, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's five foot nothing, a hundred and nothing. <laughs> when, you, when you list a player at five, seven, 166, we know, in the, we know from years of watching the NHL, it means he's five, five, 140, you know? So, and, and he looks that on the <laughs> ice, but, what he also looks is incredibly quick in small spaces, which, I mean, I guess he's a small guy. But he, he's not afraid to go into the corners and battle. I mean, he's largely, I mean, he got smoked a, uh, a couple of weeks ago, but he's largely avoided uh, getting hit. And, you know, he's got that sniper's mentality. Like, he shoot, when he shoots the puck, good things happen. He elevates the puck in tight spaces really well and we know he scores he scores a majority of his goals on those cross ice one-timers I, mean, I guess uh in the last time he scored a couple games ago against uh nashville when they when they beat them on uh that pk appreciation night a, a couple a couple games ago and both of his both of his goals were mm -hmm. cross ice one-timers like pure snipers goals i mean i know you watch him from afar and you know what do you, what do you think about this guy well, I, I not just watch him from afar, but I watch him pretty up close too. I've I've caught a, a fair portion of the the Montreal games to this point in the season, and one of the things I've discovered about um, well, I don't think I've discovered I've, I've noticed about Mister Colfield is this: despite his diminutive stature and the fact that he possesses one of the better shots in the NHL, um, this guy, as you said does not shy away from going to the tough areas on the ice. And that includes in close, in tight, in front of the net. I've seen him go to the net hard. I've seen him get involved in that danger area right in front of the crease. And he's held his own and more in there. So the fact that he's willing to go to the so-called dirty areas on the ice and be productive in those areas, as well as possess a world-class shot, it's it's the kind of thing that, you know, the Cadens have to look at that and think they've got something there. We've got someone we can build a first round, a first line around. And obviously they're doing that with the combination of their captain, Nick Suzuki and Caulfield. Uh, it certainly does put them in good stead for a future that is their, what they're building right now. Because whenever you have a goal scorer of the type of, of uh, Cole Caulfield, uh, you know that you have something that's going to be productive year in, year out because of the way this guy can score goals, not just from that wicked shot, but going into the areas where, you know, people take their lives in their hands, so to speak.
He's an impressive. And you know what impressed me as well is him and Nick Suzuki were a you know are the Canadians' dynamic duo. But uh, Suzuki went through a little bit of a lull, a little bit of a mini slump, and Caulfield was still scoring goals, was still getting his shots, was still playing with uh, dynamism. So you can say that you know, yeah, he's a. You could think maybe he's a bit of a one-trick pony. Maybe he needs Suzuki as the setup man, but he's been showing he's been showing that he can score with anybody on the ice and anybody. And he's kind of like I, now. Sac, this is not sacrilege. He reminds me of back in the '80s when um, Mike Bossy uh, was scoring. When no, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. E- hold on, hold easy on. Now. Hear me out. Easy Hear me now. Out. Hear me out. <laughs> Hear me out. Um, okay. When Brian Trotche, okay. I remember Brian Trotche had a back injury, as a lot of players did back in the back in the eighties. And I and I I really liked Mike Bossy, and I really followed him. And I thought, oh no, well here goes Brian Trotche is out with a back injury. Mike Bossy's gonna plummet, and his production actually went up without Brian Trotche. I'm not saying Cole Caulfield is Mike Bossy, but I'm impressed that without mm-hmm. the guy who his, is his setup man in Nick Suzuki, that his production, uh, not without him clicking, that Caulfield's production hasn't just fallen right off the shelf. That's what impresses me about him as a 22-year-old player. Well, that certainly speaks to his uh, ability to produce in, in, in tough situations, not just tough areas on the ice, but when he doesn't have his uh, setup man, so to speak. That, that speaks to a level of maturity, too, in a 22-year-old who's just, what, in his third full season in the NHL? Um, he, he's got a lot to, to look forward to in terms of his growth and sort of the Montreal Canadiens. I want to touch on something else, too, and it's going to be kind of one of those things where people are just going to scratch their heads. Goaltending with Montreal, because certainly they've struggled to keep the puck out of their net all season long. But Sam Montembeau, is he really there going to be their goalie of the future? Because he's starting to look like he just might be. You know what? He, it's an int- interesting, Lee, I would say in the last few games, in the last few games, teams have come out and hammered them early. Hammered them right off the top. Everybody is trying to get them out of the game early. Uh, I, I know I was watching them play the Kraken, and uh, the Kraken were up to like 15 or 16 shots to two in that first period. And I was just like, you know, it was hard for me to watch. Uh, Jake Evans has a lower body injury. So at the moment, Jake. Jake oh, Allen. I said Jake Sorry, I said Jake Evans because Jake Evans is injured as well, right? <laughs> so, so <laughs> yeah. yeah, Jake. Uh, Easy Jake, mistake Jake to Allen make. Is injured. Jake Evans is injured, and it's kind of his job, yeah, to uh, to run with. And you know, so I mean, they they beat uh, Nashville, they lost to Seattle, but you know, it's interesting is that you know sometimes numbers are you know don't tell the full story, but. I, I see that his save percentage in those in the last three games has been like over 925 in every game. He's facing an incredible amount of shots and he's being tested. I mean, but you know, he's he's making some great saves, but he's he's faced in the last few games, he's faced 
you know, 40-plus shots in every game. Uh, he's made 37 to 39 shots, uh, sorry, shots, saves in every game. He's being tested. This is his point. And I think if he comes through this test, I mean, I think, you know, he is going to be your goalie. Uh, and potentially your goalie of the future. I don't know how long, uh, you know, he's 26. He's not, a, he's not a kid by any means, but he's getting a mm -hmm. prolonged run, which he's never really gotten. And I mean, yeah. his record is, uh, he's got a 500 record. You know, his save percentage is over 900. Um, so he's, that tells me he gives you a chance to win. So, and, you know, and, you know, against the Island, I mean, you know, he faced, you know, I think he faced, what did he face? 40 shots against, uh, Nashville, 45 shots and came out with a win, you know, against Seattle, he faced, you know, 43 shots and, and kept them in it. I mean, they were hammered by Seattle in the first period, but after that, he didn't allow any goals, right? Didn't allow any goals in second and third and gave his, his team perhaps not a chance to win, but a chance to get in the game. And I mean, I guess that's all you can ask from this guy. Yeah. Well, okay, let's look at this other facet that's impacting the Canadians at this moment. We are, what, midway through January, which puts us that much closer to February, which puts us that much closer to the trade deadline. You mentioned Jake Allen, who's a veteran goaltender, has a pretty good, uh, you know, history of being a good, solid backup who can eat up starter minutes. Uh, he could be a trade bit of trade bait for Montreal, but there's more fa uh, assets on this team, potentially speaking, if Montreal's going to be a big player at the trade deadline. The problem is half of those guys are injured. So we have, what, six, seven, six weeks to go until the trade deadline hits us. Do you still think Montreal's going to be a big player at the trade deadline? The way the roster looks at the moment, Brian, no. And, and you know, I'm never one of those guys, you know, when you used to listen to the call-in radio shows and they'd be like, let's trade this guy who's, who's got 10 points, package him, and let's get a star back in here. <laughs> My problem is that the guys that I thought, uh, Sean Monahan was having a pretty good bounce back season, but he's been out for eight, you know, he hasn't played in weeks. He's only played 25 games, has 17 points in 25 games, right. and actually looked like he was bouncing back into his you know, a pro very productive NHL player. But, I mean, he hasn't played since in over a month. Um, you know. Well, let's look at him specifically then, Keith. I mean, here's a guy who's had a long battle with hip injuries, and now he's out with a, a lower body injury. Doesn't that, wouldn't that scare off yeah, prospective that, teams? See, or at least lower his price. price. Right, because a lower body injury, and you're mm -hmm. right. I mean, he said he was skating better and feeling better than he had in years but he's now we're we're in the middle of the season he's been out for a month and a half brian i mean so yeah it would give a team pause and what can you get for a guy who you know may not be able to make it through a playoff run if you are a playoff contending team i mean yeah i mean i can't see anybody giving you a a first round draft pick for him i can't see a second round draft pick you know, and I mean, or a third round draft pick. And are the Canadians going to build their team uh, quickly, you know, with third round draft picks? I don't know. But, you know, he does have a friendly contract that you can dump at the end of the season. So he's a true rental player. I mean, 
if he can get back on the ice in the next week or so, couple of weeks, and show that what he did in his first 25 games he's capable of doing and capable of doing in the playoffs, perhaps, yeah, maybe you can get something for him. Maybe you can get a young, underperforming player so, for so, him with potential. Um, but yeah, young. Yeah, a younger, un- underperforming player. So, okay, look at it this. let's look at it this way then, Keith. Montreal is obviously a team that probably has aspirations of being very active come the trade deadline. But, you know, a lot of the players that they're probably going to want to move are suffering from injuries. Not season-ending, but just the typical go-through-the-grind-of-a-hockey-season type of injuries. Does that, do you think that puts pressure on Montreal in terms of what kind of moves they're going to make at the deadline? Because it, if you have depreciating assets, which is what an injured, injured player is, you can't really look to build your team on the backs of that. Because what are you going to get in return? You're not going to get a player who's going to jump right into your roster. You're going to get draft picks. And that just sort of puts you that much further from developing into a bigger team. It, it, you, you always have to build your roster, for sure. I get that. You have to have depth in your organization. I get that. But doesn't Montreal need players who are going to play in the NHL this season if they're going to make moves? Yeah, they, they need players who are, who are going to um, produce um, to a certain level um, at, this year. But I think, though, the saving grace for the Canadians is if they can move some of these older guys, um, you know, don't lower your expectations from what you, you're going to get in return. But, I mean, maybe you can, you know, give some guys, ele- uh, elevate some guys from Laval that uh, would have had to wait and see what they can do. And, you know, back in the back of everybody's mind is, you know, can't, you know, Connor Bedard. I, I don't think the I don't think the Canadians would actually tank. I don't think players tank, but when you just you know when you don't have it night in and night out, you may put yourself in a good position to get an extremely high draft pick. And I think that's what the Canadians are looking at. I I, I just don't see the players that they have on their roster with the injuries that they're having being dealt to playoff contending teams for enough for enough. To make it, you know, for to get a, a sizable return, um, I'm not going to. I'm not going to think that. Hey, you know what? You know, I'll I'll package, you know, uh, you know, um, Brendan Gallagher, um, Mike Hoffman, and you know, Christian Dvorak, and I'm going to get, you know, a, a yo- good young player and a high pick. It's it's just not going to happen. All right, we've turned the corner on the midway point of the season, and uh, Montreal is pretty much where we expected them to be. Anything that you're looking for in the second half, other than the, the trade deadline activity uh, from the Habs? I think that you, you've got to look at the young defensemen. They're gonna, they're getting, um, you know, a deluge of shots. You know, forty shots a game. <laughs> I mean, that's not sustainable for, um, you know, well, it is sustainable. For a team, but to well, talk, yeah, it's kind of like getting, trial by serious you. fire. They're getting trial by fire. So I want to see them um, come through the last. I would even say the last quarter of the season, and and stabilize, stabilize that back end. I mean, you know, I've seen a lot of, you know, uh, you know, there's, you know, Caden Gooley, 
um, who's, who's been out. I mean, I've seen him play extremely well. I, I can't see anything but upside with him. But, you know, some of the other young defensemen, such as, you know, Arbor Jacki, Jordan Harris, um, uh, Jonathan Kovacevich. Let's, let's see these guys solidify their positions as true NHL defensemen. I, I don't care if they're ones or twos. I think Gooley is your one of the future. I don't care if the other guys are first pair, second pair, or third pair. But let's see you solidify your position. So going into next year, um, you're a strength of the team, and, and you're still not being looked at as a question mark. I want, I want these guys to, for us to see who they are, you know? For us to see who they are in this yeah. you know, last. And I'm not even saying this part of the season, because I, I always believe you go through a January, February lull. And so I want to see them come out into March, uh, the end of February, March, the beginning of April, and, and really claim their positions uh, going forward on the blue line. Yeah. Well, the last thing I want to touch on with the Habs is this, Keith, and it has something to do with them. Well, it's going to have a whole lot to do with the Habs, and it has quite a bit to do with the Florida Panthers. The trade of Benoit Sherratt, what, last season? Garnered the Habs, yep. the Florida Panthers' number one pick. Unprotected. The Panthers are having a woeful season. They are in the midst of falling into the lottery for the number one pick, who just happens to be, oh, wait for a second, a generational talent by the name of Connor Bedard. There is a world where the Montreal Canadiens have the number one pick in the draft in back-to-back seasons. That is something to build on, if that potential comes into reality. Could you imagine having Connor Bedard strap on a Montreal Canadiens? Yeah, I mean, I watched him in the World Juniors, and he is a difference maker. You know, we, we talk about a guy who, when he just gets on the ice, everything changes, there's a different feeling. You see it with his teammates. All of a sudden, it's kind of like a let's go mentality. Here's our opportunity when he's on the ice. He's a smaller guy. Um, but in recent years, I've been, I've been wrong in what I thought smaller players um, have been able to accomplish. And I mean, you know, I, I look over at, uh, you know, Jack Hughes uh, there for New Jersey and and I, and I thought, hey, you know what? Mm-hmm. I, I watched him at the World Juniors. He wasn't in by no means did he have the impact in either of his two World Junior years as Connor Bedard did. Um, no, no way. But, you know, now he's got 54 points in 43 games, and he's leading one of the best teams in the NHL, you know, just three years into his, into his uh, career. I mean... You know, and he was he was great last year before yeah. he got hurt. You know, a similar frame, little guy, um, light guy, um, and you know, if you get a Connor Bedard, and you know, thanks to the Florida Panthers, like who foresaw the Florida Panthers as being potential lottery pick when they made that deal? You know, nobody saw that. Nobody. Yeah, they certainly didn't. Know. They certainly didn't. You know, Keith, this was my way of introducing Connor Bedard into this podcast because I did want to touch on him a little bit just in watching the World Juniors and listening to the rhetoric surrounding this uh, generational talent, which he is. There's no question about that. And the one thing that really, you know, just makes it apparent to me just how great a player this 
17 year old, he's 17, is um, the way that his teammates spoke about him. There was a reverence and awe and almost just like this, who is this guy kind of tone to their conversation. It's like if they're talking, and these are the best junior players of their, their class, talking about a guy who's their peer, like he's beyond them. That's how good this kid is. When other players talk about you like that, to me, that really says something. And boy, I'll tell you, if it does come to fruition that Montreal somehow, <clears throat> excuse me, ends up with uh, a pick near the top of the draft from the Florida Panthers, <laughs> that would be one hell of a hey, you stroke know of luck. You know what's shocking, Brian? This, this guy's born in 2005. <laughs> 2005. You yeah, just had to throw that out 2005. there. 2005. Huh? <clears throat> you just had to throw that out I heard there. The other day, yeah, well. I love my stats. Is he was gone mm -hmm. for the World Juniors? He missed 13 games. 13 games. I was I. You know what? I look at this every yeah. year, actually. So it's nothing new. And he he left leading the WHL, who some arguably say is the hardest junior league most competitive junior league in the, in the world, um, he left, leading them in scoring. He returned 13 games later from the World Juniors, and he's still leading them in scoring. You know? Yeah, I almost say that, talent. Hey, let's add his World Junior... <laughs> let's add his World <laughs> Junior point totals uh, to, um, you know to his uh, WHL point totals and give him that because it should be harder to score in the, in the world juniors than the, uh, than the WHL. And this guy's got 77 points in 31 WHL games this season. 77, Brian. That's like unbelievable. Well, whoever gets them, uh, hopefully it won't be the much. <laughs> hopefully it's the Florida Panthers. Just be ridiculous. <laughs> but whoever gets them next year is going to be, I'd like to see if he can step into the NHL as an 18-year-old. That would be something because that's uh, only one player has done that this season, and we know who that is. So we'll have to see if that's going to come to fruition. All right, that's our look at the Habs <laughs> and Connor Bedard. <laughs> Let's turn our attention to the Toronto Maple Leafs. All right, the Toronto Maple Leafs seem to be back on the beam once again, um, and primarily because the goalies have gone about having themselves a bit of a reset uh, after what looked like a, you know, a, a less than stellar most of December and into January. Both Ilya Samsonov and Matt Murray have produced back-to-back -back games where they've been, well, you know, stellar. Uh, they've been the best players on the ice for the most part for the Leafs. And that makes me believe that any questions that people had about the Maple Leaf goaltending coming into this season, you know, to this point, they've been pretty much answered in a positive. And uh, that's the kind of thing that makes you wonder just that this might be the kind of season where the Leafs can have that, you know, regular season success translate into something in the postseason. I know we have a long way to go, Keith, but uh, the goalies uh, refinding their touch, so to speak, has to be a big factor for the Maple Leafs to have that confidence that they're in the midst of a, a pretty darn good season oh, yeah. to build I on. mean, just watching these guys, they, they somewhat, to me, you know, they somewhat look like copies of each other in the way they perform. But I will say that at, on home ice, I, I've talked about this before, 
Samsonov, you if you're a mm-hmm. if you're a member of the team, you step onto that uh, that home ice. Um, you know, and I know you you call it Maple Leaf Gardens earlier on this podcast, and I like to call it the Ace. <laughs> I like to call it the Air Canada Center. Um, but you know, I, I like to call it the. You did. I did, started, did I, I really do that? You know, okay, fair enough. In, oh, in your man, heart, get, in your I'm heart, it's always key. Maple Leaf Gardens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in your heart, that's, that's it. too but, funny. You know, and I still, I still call it. The yeah, ACC. it is. Um, but when you step on the yeah. ice at Rogers Center and Ilya Samsonov is backing you up. I mean, you've got to be confident. I'm not taking anything away from Matt Murray. Um, you know, but this but Samsonov is yet to lose on home ice with, you know, 931 save percentage, 1.77 goals against average. And then, you know, you turn and you go to Matt Murray who at the beginning of the season was I think he was your 1A. Um, and this guy, you know, the last few games, he's, he's, his last few games, he's looked incredible. You can barely beat this guy, you know, like you can't get a puck past this guy in the last few games. Now I know they lost to Boston the other night and I, you know what? Sure. Mm -hmm. Boston scored four goals against Murray, but I mean, even in that game, I thought he, he played, uh, he was fantastic in that game, and obviously, and, you know, he gave the yeah. Leafs a chance to win in the TD Boston Garden, where Boston doesn't lose. So, you know, um, I think with these guys now, the part of the writing of the ship is health, as always, and I think the way the Leafs are deploying them, I think you're going to get both of these guys healthy in in April, which is what really matters. I mean, you can get injured at any time, but I think with the load that these guys are going to play, you know, like these guys are each going to play, you know, 30, let's say 37 to 45 games. Or, well, I guess they took, took out some starts. So say they each play 37 to 40 games, you know, I, I think that's a real formula for success for the Leafs down the road. Well, that would be a well-rested duo heading into the playoffs. And it makes me wonder, you know, like how do you how are they going to go about determining who is the number one guy heading into the playoffs? You're not going to flip-flop your goalies in the playoffs, but I think that it seems like just the attitude of the organization, like they want Murray to be that guy. But if Samsonov keeps producing the way he has, Boy, I don't, I don't want to be responsible for making that decision. Because how do you tell one guy who's putting up the numbers that Samsonov has, is performing the way he does, that you got to take a back seat when the games count the most and just be ready? That's a tough pill to swallow. The only saving grace here is, it, and it's hard to tell just by watching, but there seems to be a really solid sort of symbiotic relationship between Murray and Samsonov. They're definitely cheering for each other, as teammates should do, and you, you'd expect that. But there seems to be a bit more to it. They are really relishing the, um, the fact that both of them are playing well. And it's a shared thing, as it should be when you play for the same team. But we know this is professional sports, and there are inter-team rivalries, intra-team rivalries. So because one guy wants to be the guy, the other guy wants to be the guy. You can't have two guys. You know what I mean? You can't have one A, B, one B and one B, B, one A. You either are or you aren't. But these guys seem to have that, that good relationship where they can share the net. But when the playoffs start, 
that's not how it works. It's you know, not a it, shared it's net. It's incredible. Um, you think about you think about it. You know, Matt Murray, he's got cups under his belt. Yep, a while back, but they're there. You know, he's, a while back, but he, you know, when he was, you know, this is a 28 year old. I mean, he's not a, he's not an old man. I mean, he's got cups under his belt when he was a young man and he's, he figured out how to do it, how to backstop a team to the Stanley cup championship. And if that is your, you know, as you've told me, that's the stated goal. That's the only thing acceptable. I think you've got to go with Matt Murray. But then how do you look at Samsonov and say Samsonov, say Samsonov goes this whole year and loses one or two games on home ice and you've got a Tampa Bay Lightning team you're playing and if the if the uh, standings hold, you've got a Lightning team coming in, but you've got home ice advantage. How do you not throw <laughs> Samsonov in there for a for a, a home start? If he's if he's unbeatable, yeah, that's an interesting conundrum you yeah. br- you bring up too, Keith. Because and I hate to do this, I don't like looking backwards. I always like looking forwards. But looking forward, you probably are right because it seems to be the way things are going to play out. That the Leafs and the Lightning are going to meet in the first round. So what was the big difference in in that in that seven game series last season? Was it the play of Jack Campbell versus the play of Andre Vasilevsky? In the end. Perhaps because Vasilevsky gave up one goal and Campbell gave up two in the seventh game. So is that the ultimate difference of the, between the two teams? Is that Vasilevsky showed up bigger in the in the ultimate game than the Leaf goaltender did, and so that lends more credence to your you know your hypothesis that if Samsonov does go through the rest of the season and puts up that stellar home record, if the Leafs hang on to the second best record and they, they got to play Tampa Bay in the first round. Is that enough to push Samsonov ahead of Murray based on Murray's, you know, performances in past playoff runs and the fact that he really is, I think their number one goaltender in all estimation. So I, you, you make, you bring up a good question there. Yeah. Is it's, that it's enough? It's a great problem to have, as they say, right? It's a great problem to have, but you look at it right now, the lightning, and the Leafs, you know, virtually, um, they've got virtually the same record. I mean, the Leafs have, the Lightning have three games in hand to the Leafs, and they're only de- behind them by four points. I mean, so, yeah. I yeah. mean, one of those teams, I mean, you get home ice. That's the other thing. You're, you're back in a game seven. I mean, I don't know. You're in a game seven. That means that... If you say you you go with Murray, that means he's lost three times, you know, or even if he's only made two starts, that means, you know, sorry, he's only made, you know, four starts or five. He's, he's got a couple of losses. Do you go with what has, that you've been winning with all season? I mean, you know, this is a formula, you know what I'm saying? That's got you where you are. Uh, Yeah. That's a crazy Mm -hmm. problem to have. Like, do you go away from the formula? That's made you successful. That's that you know. That's made you second yeah. in the Eastern Conference. See that, and and that right there, Keith, to me is why this regular season is so exciting and so much fun to watch. Because look, the Leafs, I think, have built up enough credibility that we know they're going to play 
for the majority of games, they're going to play pretty darn good hockey. There's going to be a blip here. There's going to be a, a loss to Detroit there. But for the most part, they're proving that they are a top-notch, upper-level NHL team. So how do you sort yourself out heading to the playoffs? What are you going to do to sort yourself out? And the, and the great thing about this is that goalie question coming into the season was all about performance and injury. Well, the performance question has been answered. And to a great extent, the injury issue has been answered. So now it's all about consistency of play. And they seem to be getting that from these guys. So that, to me, is the exciting portion of watching these next 40, 41, or 40, whatever they had now, yep. 39 games left in the regular season. You know, that plus, and here's where I want to switch tacks for a second, the uh, Austin Matthews conundrum. People are looking at him and saying he's not quite the player he was last year. I, I, I wholly disagree with that. He may not be scoring at the same rate he scored last year, which was historic, but is he not playing at a level commensurate with his ability? Absolutely. This guy does things on the ice that just, you, you take them for granted and they go unnoticed because he is at the stature he is. But my goodness, watching him play now, it's like the man controls a hockey game. Whenever he's, he's like you said but earlier, he's one of those guys, as soon as he steps on the ice, zoom, you're on him. Your eyes are just drawn to him because of what he does on both ends of the ice, what he does in the neutral zone, that just the way he plays the game, you cannot help but watch this guy play. And even a couple of days ago against Boston, he scored a goal, which is going to go down as one of the goals of the year because of a play he started in the defensive oh. end of the ice. The man took a baseball swing, knocks the puck up the ice to, I think it was Mitch Marner. Then he gets on his train, dashes up the ice, and pulls off a world-class goal. Like Justin, like all of that taken into its entirety is Austin Matthews. Supremely talented on the offensive end and brilliant in the defensive end. So to those people who think, oh, he's not going to score 60 goals, he's not quite the player he was, take a look at that play. And I... Leave that for you as exhibit A, that this guy is, if he's not the best player in the league, he's right up there in the top five. Um, you know what? I watched him. That was a, that was a fantastic play. Fantastic play. I was, I was, a, I was Brilliant. like, hey, Brilliant. Is, this, uh, <laughs> is this high stick? Is this a high stick? But, I mean, also the other part of the play is getting that puck, roofing that puck like a foot in. Yeah. From foot, in tight. I mean, we've seen him do oh. it before, so it's not shocking, yeah. but you know, he sold yeah. he sold that he was going down low as well. And if you watch, really watch him, he's he has all these little subtleties to his game for a big guy, right? These little subtleties, little mm -hmm. changing of the stick angle, you know, to make not just shot not to shot attempts, but passes. He just has all of these little subtleties to his game. Um, yeah, you score 60 goals <laughs> in today's NHL, you're going to have expectations. And of course, he's in the biggest hockey market. So, you know, coming into the season, people were, can he get 70? That was a question. Can he get 70? Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I was actually shocked. That great goal that he scored yesterday was his 21st of the season. And it, it registered to me. I knew that it was, you know, 
I knew that he, he only had 20 goals. But then when they said it, I was like, wow. And they, something they also said is he's only got one multi, multi-goal game this season. Last year, it seemed that, you know, yeah. he, I, I didn't count, but I know he's, he had at least a dozen multi-goal games. Um, is he taking over games uh, like he did last year? Uh, no, but he is taking over games. You know, you, you watch him, as you said. Yeah. In a different way, games, right? And it's like, this guy's just orchestrating things. He's, he's really an interesting center in that he does it in a different way. Like, I, I wouldn't say he doesn't, you know what he does? He doesn't do things that aren't necessary, but he does things <laughs> that are extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He doesn't do unnecessary yes. things, yeah. but you know, defensively, as you said, he no. came back. He made that baseball, you know, that I don't know what you want to call it—that half swing, <laughs> that check swing down the ice. But he does yeah. things that like that that are extraordinary. But he's also in the right position and and the right place, you know. So all the yeah, time, all that time. How do you like? And that's the thing. All the time. How do you do that all the time? And here's the thing, Keith. And I can't take credit for this. It's something I heard over the course of the last week just listening, or maybe it's something I read. But the thing about Matthews, he makes it so much easier on the defense of the Leafs. And it was evident when he was out just how much easier he makes it. He's always available for an outlet. He's always there to help the defense. He's always there to pick up the man that's uncovered. And that to me is, you know, his presence of mind on the ice is is so next level. That when he does make the rare mistake defensively, and you can see that it pains him, and he knows when he's made the mistake too, which is incredible, um, you just don't see that happening with this guy because he's that aware of where things are going and how they're being laid out on the ice. And that helps your defense immeasurably, which is one of the reasons why I think the the Leafs have been able to uh, overcome the injuries they suffered to their defense core over the course of the last few weeks is the fact they've got guys like Matthews and Marner to a great extent who are so capable of impacting the game on the defensive end while still contributing at a super high level offensively. It's remarkable to watch and it's the kind of thing that as we look at the second half of the season makes you hope and 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 not just hope, but think that this is a team now that has reached a level where they know they have a style of hockey they need to play and how to build on that. And that's the thing that makes you have success come playoff times. You know you know you have a way you need to play. You know what you need to do, especially on the defensive end, to have success. And that's what you have something to hold yourself up when things aren't going your way offensively. You can always commit to defense, and that's in any sport. You know, the commitment has to be there to want to do that. Offense comes and goes, but defense, that's a commitment that you make. And if you've made that commitment, those are the teams that have success. Hopefully that plays out for the Leafs this season because you know what? It's about damn time this team got out of the first round, and why not this Can I drop a quick stat on you? And I know you... Feel free. Feel free. you're, You're correct. I think Austin Matthews is consciously trying to do it in a different way. Last year, he had 60 mm-hmm. goals. He was a plus, mi- his plus minus was 20. This season, through 42 games, he has 21 goals, and his plus minus is 18. Same amount of ice time. <laughs> that yeah. tells me that he's made that decision 
to be more responsible defensively. And, and what is it they say, Keith? What wins championships again? <laughs> Defense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, um, I want to leave things with the Leafs right there because that's a good positive note to end on with the Leafs. And I think we have a lot to get to with the Toronto Raptors who have, boy, all I can say is this, they are struggling. So let's get to the Toronto Raptors. All right, Brian Dunstan, Keith Reading here, and it's time to talk about hoops, specifically the Toronto Raptors. I've said this before on this podcast, Keith, particularly when the Raptors got hit by the, the streak of injuries that kind of derailed their season to a great extent, that January would be decision time for this team. Well, it's the middle of January, and it's decision time. Um, they started off the year, 2023, by losing. They picked up a little bit of headway, and then they lost to an Atlanta team that they probably should have beaten, except that old bugaboo, the terrible first quarter, came up and bit them in the butt once again. So they're at a definite crossroads in their season, in my opinion, and something I've, I've held to pretty much all year. This point of the season is the crux for them. They're either going to go one way or they're going to go another. And it has to happen in the next couple of weeks. Because if it doesn't, then Masai, uh, Masai Ujiri and Bobby Webster better start answering their phone and better start pushing the buttons on their phone because it's time to do something at the trade deadline. Because let's face it, you cannot hover around the play-in game, uh, the play-in round, all season long if you're the Toronto Raptors. You have to have bigger aspirations with the talent that's on this team. And there is talent on this team. But if it's not performing, you got decisions to make. So we're going to see what happens over the course of the next couple of weeks in January as to what's going to happen come that trade deadline. Yeah, we're uh, less than a month away from the trade deadline. Um, less mm -hmm. than a month away. Um, you look at the Raptors, and you know you, you think I guess we the organization has to figure what do we want to be this year. I mean, for a lot of teams, Brian, hovering around. I know you said hovering around uh, the play-in line with all the injuries that they've had. Hovering around the playoff line, uh, the uh, play-in line is not exactly a terrible place should be. I think, you know, in three weeks time, if you're still there, obviously the, you know, the deadline will be closer. You, you have to take a look. But honestly, when I look at the Raptors, and I'm not a, a cockeyed Raptors optimist, but I actually think that this team can, over the next three weeks, if they get it together, can be in the, you know, maybe the seven, eight slot. I mean, they're tied for 10th right now. I think they can be in the seven, eight slot. Um, then, then what do you do? But didn't didn't don't you think they had higher aspirations of that coming into the season? I know they got derailed by injuries, but you know everyone does. So don't you think they should have higher aspirations than that? Just based on the talent, one hundred percent. But based on the other teams in the East, even when we were talking from, you know, in our first podcast, we knew it would be really mm -hmm. tough for them to break into the top, you know, the top four, top five. And the yeah. way it's playing out, hey, if the Raptors uh, somehow could make it into the sixth slot, I would be really happy 
with the team that they have. I mean, you know, you look at, you know, I, I read an ESPN article, and I don't take into con consideration everything they say when it comes to the Raptors, because I, I don't know if they focus on the Raptors all year. Uh, another conversation. But they've got the obvious uh, targets for the tra to trade players with value, and the number one target is Pascal Siakam. To me, if you somehow, if on February 9th, February 8th, you trade Pascal Siakam, that means to me you're then going to change. You're calling it you're a calling season. You're calling it a season. But you're also, as you call it, Project 6-9. I think you're also calling it on Project 6-9 if you trade Pascal Siakam. Really? Yeah. I, because, really? That, that's an interesting contention. Yeah, I may not agree with you, but it's it's well, intriguing. I think he is that you would think, I think that he's one of the poster boys for, for, in the league for a guy. Obviously, the physical attributes, but also a guy who can score in a variety of ways. A guy who can pass the ball. I think, you know, and also when you watch defensively, a lot of times, you know, when um, Thaddeus Young isn't in there, Pascal's also. Playing against a guy, he can play any. He can play five to to one, right? Mm -hmm. So on the defensive yeah. end, that's yeah. the other part about Project Six Nine. I know everyone thinks, yeah, Scotty can do it too, but Pascal can do it as well. So I think you're you're going to have to rejig your thought process because my my point of contention is if you trade Pascal, who is who is playing Project Six Nine in the league better than he is right now? Game in, game out. You know? Yeah. Good so point. You Good trade point. Him, you I know? mean, I know you trade him also. You you can trade him also because, you know, he's, he's you're going to get a full other season out of him. He won't be a, a guy who's a true rental um, if you pick him up. But, I mean, for me, I, I don't know. I, I like the players, the Raptors frontline players. There's no way you trade Scotty Barnes. I don't think that... <laughs> I don't think that's a no. That's a no, that's a non-starter. Non but the Raptors. The other thing that yeah. I think Brian that people forget is that the Raptors, going forward, you know they've got a lot of a lot of draft picks, a lot of first rounders. We didn't have a first rounder this last season. Yes, they right? do. We took Coloco. Uh, yeah. They. I say we. Sorry. They took Coloco in the second round. Um, now they've got first rounders mm -hmm. uh, coming up. Do you do you just add to what you have? Uh, do you panic? And yeah, I would consider it a panic because, you know, hey, look, uh, I, I contend that when you went in all in on Kawhi Leonard four years ago, um, you're going to set your franchise back if he leaves. The Raptors, I think, overperformed w when Kawhi left. And now they're kind of settling into where they should be. I mean, do you want to build? Yeah. Uh, do you want to build through trades or do you want to build through draft? The other part about it, Brian, and I'm sorry for going on so long. When no, when the Raptors okay. draft players, they tend to be players who want to be here, and I think that's a bigger part of the Raptors' um, thought process and situation than any other team in the NBA. You need to have guys who want to be here. I don't know if trades want to stay, free agents want to stay like homegrown players. I think that's a big thing. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to disagree with the last thing you said there, Keith, because I think that that stigma that's been attached to the Raptors since their inception, 
has fallen by the wayside. I think players now understand what Toronto offers as an organization and as a destination. Uh, that they want to be here and do want to come here. So I'm going to leave that like that because that's a whole other argument we can have another time, whether you still think that's a factor or not. But I will say this. <clears throat> the Raptors, as they're currently constructed, if they can have a healthy lineup, we've seen what that does. That means they have a bench that's productive, which is one of the things that's gone up, by the way, since Precious Achua returned from injury and has found his game. Their bench production is better. Chris Boucher is playing better alongside Precious Achua. And that should have a corresponding effect on the starters, who in the last four or five games or so, we've seen their minutes come down for the first time in God knows how long. So that's why I'm kind of semi-optimistic about what remains in January and heading into February because of the trade deadline looming. The fact that their starters aren't playing as much means they're going to be fresher. The fact that you're getting some offensive production from the bench means that it takes less of a load off of the starters once again. So when they are on the court for those big minutes, they can produce at a higher level. That should lead to more wins because the Raptors have talented players on their bench, they have talented players in their starting lineup. At some point, they're going to coalesce and come together, and they're going to be the team we thought they were. The question is, is it too late? And I think Nick Nurse said it best. He says, look, and I'm going to paraphrase here once again, um, we know what we have with this team when we're healthy. We know that we can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with any team in this league when we're healthy. But right now, they're getting healthy, they're getting players back. Now they need to find a couple of things, consistency and confidence within each other. And that, sadly, takes a bit of time. So there's going to be some peaks and valleys until they find that consistency. And the thing is, you're past the midway point of the season. Do you have enough time to develop that consistency, which will ble bleed into that confidence, which will make you a team that can really actually go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the best teams in the league. I don't know if they have enough time for that, Keith, which once again puts the ball in the court of Masai and Bobby. They know this. They're, they're guys who have been around basketball their whole lives. They understand how hoop works. Do they see something that's going to make them want to believe that this team, as it's currently constituted, has a chance to have a second-half resurgence? That's the question. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, those guys, obviously, they know basketball better than, than us on this podcast. But the way I mm -hmm. look at it, Brian, right now, the Raps are two games behind the Atlanta Hawks, who are, you know, if the Raps... Who they, who who they, they just, just lost, lost to, lost to They would have been one game behind <laughs> them if they had won at home. Yeah. But, so... For me, the Raptors season right now is less than what I thought it would be. But mainly because, and I know everyone has to go through injury. I, you remember, I was pulling out the stats at the beginning of what the Raptors did when players got injured and how they didn't miss a beat. Well, I mean, they've come back down to earth, I think, a little bit. Well, and, and they've missed yeah, a beat. They've, <laughs> they've definitely they missed, missed a, a beat. beat. But I think that, you know, mm -hmm. they, you know, okay, take away the Atlanta loss. They won three games in a row at home uh, to actually, believe it or not, man, be, their home record was like, they only had two, sorry, I, I say at home. Uh, yeah, at home. They were a 500 team at home before that. 
I mean, this is a team that traditionally has a great home record. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I think the Raptors, other teams are going through injuries at the moment too. Maybe this is the time that the Raptors climb up the standings. Uh, and we mentioned off the top, you know, Kevin Durant's out, Jalen Brown's out, you know, so maybe the Raptors really pick it up. Uh, I, I look at the numbers of a team like the Miami Heat, who are way ahead of the Raptors and their metrics. I'm complaining about the about the uh, Raptors scoring, and then the Heat are scoring three points per game less than the Raptors. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I think the Raptors still have what it takes, but I, I think that, as you said, the biggest thing is going to be keeping the players on the court. That's what I think. Yeah. You know, unless there's a freak injury, yep. I don't see Pascal getting hurt again. Um, he's, he seems to be playing within himself the last few games, and I don't see him getting injured. I mean, keeping Fred healthy, Fred Van Vliet, I mean, is, is key. It's key. It's crucial. Crucial. Thank crucial. You. crucial. 100%. <laughs> so I think if you can keep the team healthy, I do think in 39 games, I think they, they have the chance to, to maybe, I say in 39 games, if the Raptors were 25 and 14 in that 39-game stretch, that wouldn't shock me. Gee, that sounds awfully yeah. familiar. <laughs> <laughs> if they were 25 and 14, I personally would be very happy. And I think, you know, I think yeah. they're, you know, fighting for that sixth or seventh spot in the standings. Yeah, and you know, one thing that we should talk about too is definitely the I guess the turnaround that we've seen in Scotty Barnes. I think whatever was ailing him physically has gone by the wayside. He looks a little more fluid in his movement. He's definitely got a lot more energy and his explosiveness is back. Definitely Scotty Barnes seems to have gone through that sophomore slump and is coming out the other side. Yeah, Brian, you know what? I wasn't even going to mention this, but explosiveness, (laughs) the last few games (laughs) I have seen him crown people. He has just exploded, um, you know, and, and dunked it over bigger guys, taken two steps. And yeah, because of his ankle injury, um, I, he didn't have that in his game. I mean, he got injured a couple months ago. He didn't have that in his game. But I, ne- I honestly, Brian, I've never seen this in his game. You know, he's, he's a big man uh, as, as a young man. And he is just like down low. He's becoming a very physical player and using that physicality. You know, he's, he's also in, a, in the last three games, three of the last four games, he scored over 20 points a game uh, against Atlanta, which was a loss. He had 12 rebounds. You know what I mean? Uh, the, the game before, he had seven and nine. This is a guy, I think he's really coming into his role. Um, he's, you, I noticed early in games, he seems to really be trying to set up his teammates. And then he's, at, towards the end of games, he's wanting to take shots. You know, he's wanting to be one, like, there's no the guy, I don't believe, on the Raptors, but he's wanting to be one of the guys. I was listening to media talk about, you know, oh, he's a sophomore slump because his point production was down, but his point production of 15.3 points per game last year, he's slowly, he's he's creeping up to that. He's at 15.1. So, for me, watching Scotty Barnes over the last, I'd say, five, six games, it looks like a player who's gone through the sophomore slump and is really finding his role. Uh, what do you think about that? Oh, I, I 100% agree with you. I think that 
the uh, the injury or whatever was bothering him physically was a huge factor in putting this sophomore slump on top of his very broad, very strong shoulders and slowing him down. Um, obviously, there's something that's gotten better there. So, yeah, he's a huge factor. For, I mean, obviously, he's a huge factor for the Raptors. The way he performs on the court, his multifaceted game, his multi-positional uh, game on offense and on defense makes them a much deeper and much more fluid team. And if he's healthy, well, then, yes, I think these next 39 games are going to be uh, better than the previous 40-plus games. So, yeah, I think, uh, man, Scotty Barnes turned that corner, huge factor coming down the second half. And remember last season, he was much better in the second half of the season. Not to take anything away from yes. the first half, but he was better in the second half yeah. of the season. Yeah, he was in the good first. point. You're right. You're 100 percent right about that, because I think that's what really pushed him into the rookie of the year conversation and ultimately got him the award was that second half. And why shouldn't we see a similar turnaround, particularly with his uh, improved health? Well, just to wrap things up with the Raptors, I'd like to say this. I think that there's a certain um, confidence that comes with knowing you have players behind you that are performing at a high level. And that's going to be the big difference in these next 39 games is having that availability from the bench people. Chris Boucher has performed better. Precious Achua is rounding yep. in the form. Malachi Flynn is becoming a factor. And Christian Coloco has played well. Again, he's gone through his bit of a rookie dip and he's coming out the other side. Those are four players on your bench squad that have got to be productive in order for the starters to have the success that they need. And ultimately, Keith... We have the rest of January and into February to find out if this Raptor team is going to make that turn. And I, for one, am fairly confident they will. It's just the type of team they are and the type of players they have. Okay, so that's it for episode 12. Episode 13 will be coming up soon. Don't you dare miss it. If you're listening to this announcement, you've made it to the end of another TIYP Narrowcast. The opinions, views, and statements you've heard on this edition of Puck and Hoop are solely those of the host, guests, and their sources. The purpose of the Puck and Hoop Narrowcast is to entertain and inform our listeners, followers, and subscribers, and to help them form their own opinions. Thanks for listening.